Good morning. Good to be with you guys again. And uh, my wife made me promise that I wouldn't make any jokes about sounding like Barry White. So <clears throat> that's as far as that will go. Uh, but it has, it has been a great gift to our family to uh, not just to know this church, but over the last couple months to uh, commit ourselves to this church, formally become part of this church, um, but also to see and to experience the ways of the church receiving us. And in full disclosure, though I had been in ministry for a long time, I had been at all kinds of different churches, uh, maybe once I had been in a church in my adult life that was very life-giving to me, that I received as much as I poured out. And I had come to a place in my life where I was pretty sure, I, know, I knew it existed, but I was pretty sure I wasn't gonna find it again. And these last couple months for us have been, um, have been exactly that, have been us finding ourselves in a body of followers of Jesus that um, have challenged my cynicism and have convinced me that, no, it, it is possible to find yourself in a life-giving congregation again. And uh, we're very grateful to be a part of it, very grateful for each of you. Uh, and if you're new, welcome. Uh, I hope that you experience some of what you're hearing me talk about. But this church has been a gift to us, and it certainly has been a family in all the best ways. So it is uh, even better for me then to have the opportunity to open God's word and to look at what God may have to say to us, not. Uh, as a pulpit supply, not as another pastor, but simply as another member, another follower of Jesus. Uh, I'm coming to find tremendous joy and satisfaction in being able to teach the word from a position like this. So um, since Taylor read it, what I'd like to do is just simply to pray again, um, because I really feel like there may be something that the Lord has for us, and simply it's habit now. So... Uh, if you would indulge me for a moment. Holy Spirit, we pray. We ask you please to come. I know for myself, I am not interested in more spiritual exercises or mo more religious goods and services. I'm not interested in platforms. We need to hear from you. We need you to speak to us. And we need this to be more than just one guy sharing his thoughts about your word. We need you to come in power. We need you to take your words and to give them life. So come, Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, let your kingdom be here in Briar Grove Elementary as it is in heaven. Let your presence be real and felt by everyone. We ask this in your name. Amen. I think it's safe to say that there are nothing like the holiday season to remind you that you're not entirely over your childhood. There's something about, I don't know what it is, even if you have the best family and had the best childhood, Everyone gets about five days into their holiday visitation. They're like, I have got to get out of here. 
And even if it's your child, I mean, even in the best scenarios, every person I've ever talked to, by about the second or third day after Christmas, you're like, I'm good. This is fun, mom and dad, but I gotta get out. Or it's your siblings or somebody else, maybe a relative. You're just ready to be done. And I think the reason we all feel that is because in some sense, none of us ever really get past our childhood. I'm convinced that none of us for sure ever get past high school. And all it takes is going back. And suddenly you find yourself back in the same patterns. You see the same stories playing out. And in fact, I actually read a study not too long ago, uh, a, a few psychologists and neurologists studied this effect that actually the reason why that happens so often for other reasons, but one of them is simply that those neural pathways are still present in your brain. So when you go back to your childhood home, and you're sleeping in your childhood bed, and you're surrounded by the same people that you were around all the time throughout your childhood, it engages those same neural pathways. And so after two or three days when you realize I'm acting like my 15-year-old self, that's because your brain is thinking, oh, we're back here now. <laughs> some of it's also socialization, some of it's also spiritual things. And for some of us, this is a less than funny, a less than funny situation. For some of us, going home is painful. Some of us, for some of us, going home is a reminder of all the ways you didn't fit with your family. All of the wounds that are still left festering. That the rest of your year, it's easy to just kind of push them away and push them down and you don't have to see those folks for a while. But whether your childhood was good, whether it was bad, whether it was wonderful, whether it was just okay, we all still have something that we're carrying with us. And even if there's not some wound, even if you're not hurt by something, there are still stories that you tell yourself. Things that were spoken over you from your youngest years, whether you remember them or not, but those stories are still playing in your life. And that shouldn't surprise us because everywhere we look, we recognize the stories are powerful. You wanna build an organization, you gotta tell a story. You wanna lead a Fortune 100 company, you still have to tell a story. You wanna have a family, you want your career to go a certain way, you want this house, it's all part of this story that is playing out in your head. And those stories are huge, but they just sit in the background. And it's no surprise to me then that while we have these snippets of Jesus' life, we don't really know that much. And one of the things that came out in the early centuries after the life of Jesus and after the church began to grow was that people, were just, they just couldn't let it go. What, what did happen in Jesus? What was his childhood like? We even see this now. I saw countless little cartoons, one being uh, a, apparently a baby Jesus standing in a bathtub, but not in it, just on the water, and Mary saying, in, with the joke being bath time with baby Jesus. That even as a child, he was walking on water and refusing to get in the tub. We, we all have this curiosity about Jesus' childhood, and we wanna know the story. We wanna know what happened. 
another well-known story that was written in second or third century, all about people wondering what was it like for God to be a baby. There's a story about him uh, taking stones and turning them into doves. Because obviously, if God is a child, well, like that's gotta show up somehow. Or there's a, a, another lady who, in the last 10 or so years, who came to faith, used to write vampire novels, and she came to faith, and so obviously she's gonna write about Jesus' childhood. And she wrote a series of novels. She wrote a series of novels sort of wondering out loud, what would it have been like for Jesus as a little boy? We naturally have this curiosity. We want to know, what was this kid like? Obviously, he was perfect. Clearly, he never talked back to his mom, which I think is actually debatable. Uh, But we still have these questions. And all we're given are these little snippets. We're given stories like this one that we're gonna look at this morning, and we have to wonder, okay, if you're gonna tell us any stories, why these? Why would you tell us about, okay, he's eight years old and he was circumcised, okay? Uh, and then we bring it, what, what is important about these stories? And I, what I want to share with us and what I want to contend for is the fact that uh, this particular story is so important for us to recognize, not so that we can have some satisfaction or some curiosity satisfied, not so that we can have some sort of insight into what Jesus' childhood looked like, but it's because something really significant happened in these earliest days, and because there's something about each of these scenes in these verses that in one way or another captures the wounds and the stories that we are still carrying with us. And that when we come to a story like this, recognizing that Jesus' ministry to us did not begin after his temptation, but began the moment of his conception, the moment of his birth, the moment when God as man fully entered this world, then there's something about these interactions and these stories that becomes redemptive for us and can become healing for us, especially so quickly on the heels of a holiday season where so much of this is fresh. And as we look at this, I want to go into it with uh, a quote from a fourth century pastor by the name of Athanasius who wrote a short treatment called On the Incarnation, so you can guess what it's about. And at one point he says simply this, that at the moment of God entering this world, the moment of God in flesh as the smallest baby, he says at that moment, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled and the corruption of death which formerly held them in its power has simply ceased to be. From the smallest baby Every moment, every experience, everything Jesus touched, he restored. And so when we look at these three stories, stories of Jesus' poor family, stories of a spirit-filled old man, and the stories of an overlooked old woman, I think most of us will find ourselves in this. 
and most of us will find some healing for what we realize has been lacking from our childhood, things that we have been carrying with us. And so I want to start where the story starts in verse 22, where we're told that the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, referring to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And hearing me read that out loud, no doubt you heard the repetition of the same phrase, according to the law, according to the law. So many times over and over again, Luke is wanting to reiterate a very important fact that from the earliest moment of Jesus' life, even though he had no say in it, I don't know if you've been around many babies, uh, they mostly just sit there. But from his earliest life, even in the most passive of ways, Jesus was fulfilling the law, which is essential, which is important, which is key for us, for him to be our redeemer, he had to do that. But there's part of it that we could easily overlook. Yes, he fulfilled the law. And yes, if we go back and read the Old Testament law, there's a lot there. There's a lot to keep in mind. There's a lot to hold on to. There's a lot to satisfy. And yet, when we stop and we start to read it more slowly, something really important begins to emerge. Is that God, while he is still dealing with this separation that sin causes, he is so often making exceptions. He is so often creating means for people who don't have means. So while it may be that our picture of sacrifice, the, the, the ideal animal to give in our place to satisfy this sin may have been a lamb. In some places, it's, it's a ram or other cattle. These are big. These are expensive. These are uh, not an animal that just every Israelite had. So what do you do? We might be tempted to think that unless we have means, unless we have some sort of position, unless we have more to offer, I can't get as close to God as those who can. And yet, God, though he will deal honestly with us, also deals generously because he makes other ways for people, which is why Luke not only pointing out that Jesus and his family are fulfilling the law, but they do so at the lowest common denominator because it's the only way they could. These were not wealthy people. They had no position. They had no standing. They didn't go to the right schools. They maybe didn't even go to a trade school. Joseph did what he could. They didn't have much. They came from some backwater town. And maybe even getting these two uh, turtle doves or let's be, or two young pigeons. Maybe even that was a stretch for them. But they did it because God made a way. God ensured that every person who wanted to come to him that could deal with this, that there was a way, that there was a way that was acceptable to him. And here are Jesus' young parents, not only reeling from the fact that somehow Mary uh, had a baby, but 
not the usual way and all of the fallout from that and all of the questions that are surrounding them in that moment, but now they also have to fulfill these obligations that they may have, after Jesus is born, gone, oh, well, how do we do that? And yet here is this simple, small, inexpensive way. And one of the things that I find interesting, the older I get, is even if someone now has been tremendously successful, maybe life has gone every way that they could, if they grew up when they didn't have that, so much of what they do now is driven by that. So much of their drive, whether it's in their career or their relationships or where that they live, comes from this need to ensure I have a place, that I have some position, that I can get the things that signify I have the place, that I have the position. And we run, we tell this story so much of our life, wherever it came from, that if I don't have the stuff, if I don't have the position, if I don't have the place, then I don't count and I can't draw near. I can't draw near to those people that they really matter. I can't have that standing that signifies I really matter. And maybe it's going home that reminds you of that. Maybe you tell yourself that story every morning or maybe it's circumstances that bring it out and yet here is Jesus at his most vulnerable. Maybe two pigeons is more than their family can handle. And yet Jesus satisfies it. And that from the bottom, from the lowest acceptable sacrifice, Jesus satisfies everything above it. That his family giving these two pigeons is enough to satisfy for every child, even those children whose families could offer all kinds of sheep or cattle, they had all the position. But the thing about the story of Jesus is it's not a top-down approach, it's from the very bottom, but it moves up. That Jesus, by taking the lowest position, brings up everyone else and draws up everyone else, so much so that in his ministry, he would repeatedly say, that in my kingdom, the least will be the greatest. That among men, no one greater than John the Baptist has existed, but in the coming kingdom, even the least will be greater than him. Everything about Jesus' life turns those stories on their heads. Everything in Jesus' life is constantly confronting the lie that what you have or what was kept from you or what you have earned that is how you find meaning. That is where you get significance. That's where respect comes from. Everything in his life says that is a lie. And Jesus at his most vulnerable, at his most dependent, at his most weak. God in his providence has ensured that the family he is a part of barely has the means to give the smallest sacrifice. And yet that is enough. And I think some of you just need to hear that. That just by being here, that's enough. 
that's enough. You're enough. And even if you still feel like you're not, you can lean on the fact that Jesus at his smallest, that by going through childhood has redeemed all of that. So you can accept you're enough, that what you had was enough. And the story turns from there. In verse 25, we're introduced to a man, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. We're told that he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit was upon him, that had been revealed by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And again, Luke is repeating something that is important for us. Three times there in introducing this man where he is described as being in the spirit, full of the spirit, that this was told to him by the spirit. That this, everything about this man and this encounter that he is about to have with Jesus is driven and led and filled and inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. Which is significant on a number of levels. Number one, that uh, what will come out of him is clearly uh, part of the Old Testament expectation for what the Spirit did. That primarily in the Old Testament, when the Spirit was on someone, it was to bring about some sort of prophetic utterance. So, when Saul is king, and uh, this, there's a moment where we're told that the spirit fell on him, what immediately happens is that he begins to prophesy. And even later in his life, when Saul is chasing David and trying to remove David so that he can't take over his throne, there's a moment where the spirit falls on him again, and he begins to prophesy. The entire Old Testament expectation is that where the spirit is present God is speaking through those people. And in this short story, as Luke is telling it, the spirit has been all over the place because for 400 years, he hadn't been. And now it seems everywhere we turn in these opening chapters of the book of Luke, he's everywhere. He's falling on Elizabeth, he's falling on Zechariah, he's falling on Mary, now he's falling on this guy. And the, the next few verses we'll look at in a little bit he also is falling on this older woman named Anna, that the spirit is everywhere, part of this story. And part of it is, is kind of a gift because if you have been waiting, your people have been waiting for hundreds of years and here is this guy who has been waiting most of his life and for what it sounds like is pretty old, which is rare. I have to imagine that this man who seemed to be a godly man, who seemed to have some sort of position, was often hoping and wondering and thinking, God, uh, will I, will I, whatever it is you're gonna do next, will I ever live to see it? And maybe I'm psychologizing a little bit here, but I have to imagine that if he started to hear some rumblings about maybe God was doing something, his biggest fear is that he would get an inch away from seeing it but die before he ever could. And so just this man's story is a grace that, that God is not gonna bring us 99% of the way and then just let us die. If he's doing something, he will do it. Even if 
we see it and then die. Whatever God is doing in your life, whatever he is moving you towards and preparing you for, you will see it. But it's also interesting to me as we consider what, what does this baby Jesus, how, how is that redeeming anything about our lives, anything about our stories? It's, it then becomes not a coincidence to me that this is an old man who sees what's happening and speaks something quite beautiful over this little child. Because if there is anything, and maybe this is more for the men in room, but if there is anything that follows a person longer, that affects them more profoundly, it is the lack of an affirming father's voice. I think it's safe to say that every man in this room feels that. But I have met some men that clearly lacked that. And they are difficult people to be around. Every interaction is painful. Because when we hurt, we don't like to feel hurt. We like to project that onto other people. And there's something about a father wound that projects some of the worst pain on people. And yet here is Jesus again in his weakness and his vulnerability and his poverty. Not only is he make a way for those of us who had nothing, but God in his providence also ensures here is this godly older man who can see, not only live out his last days, seeing what God has been working everything towards and he can hold it in his hand, but that also that older man can speak this great blessing over this young Jesus. We're told in verse 27 that he came in the spirit to the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel. And it might not seem like much, but nearly every word that this man just spoke over Jesus comes from multiple different places in the Old Testament. Primarily Isaiah. Four or five different places that this man alludes to and refers to and quotes all in this one moment. So he is not just saying that this baby that the angels told you would be God in the flesh that would save his people but he would also fulfill all of these expectations, all of these hopes, all of these things we've been longing and waiting for. He is those things. And he will satisfy all of them. You realize that this, this moment doesn't need to happen for Jesus to still do that. And yet Jesus, as our priest, as our brother, as our representative, still has this moment from his youngest days where this old man, speaks in affirmation of what God is doing in his life. I had a man who taught uh, my Sunday school class starting from when I was in third grade. And we all look forward to a Sunday school class because he always brought Dunkin' Donuts, donut holes. I remember nothing else, but he always had donuts, so I was pumped. And he followed most of us uh, through the years up into junior high and high school and one of the things, he, he always seemed like a great, hardworking man, 
He seemed, uh, he really loved the Lord. He wrestled with, maybe I should have been called to ministry because he loved what he did, even teaching Sunday school to a bunch of uh, wild third grade boys. But as I got older and he told me more of his story, I realized how much of his life he was hurting because he had been given no choice in his vocation. You see, his dad, like most men in Southeast Michigan, had been an engineer. So of course, his son would be. And even at times when he protested, dad, I don't really like this, I'm not really good at it. It was made clear to him in ways I've never been told, but I imagine were not pleasant. That no, you are going to do this, you are going to be an engineer, you are going to do this work, you are going to be successful. And the first time it dawned on me that men carry wounds from their father was when I was a high school student. And I was listening to this man that I respected, this man who, uh, in the ways, as best as he knew how, discipled me and my friends through most of our young life. Was one of the few men willing to have those hard conversations with us. That this man was hurting and had been in his entire life because his dad insisted, no, 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 I know what is good for you. I know what God wants for you. Or even, I think in his case, he didn't even care. Wouldn't have even entertained the idea that, what do you mean what God wants for your life? Who cares? You need to do this job. And what I have realized, the older I've gotten from my high school self, is that more men live that story than not. More men are doing the work that they're doing now or they've done for 30 years because they weren't given a choice. Because nobody in their life stopped to ask, maybe God does have something to say about what you do with your life. And maybe you do need to be an engineer or a lawyer or God knows what else. Or maybe you do need to go live in some third world country and dig wells for people. But too many of us have been afraid to ask the question. And so now that we have our own kids, we feel that same, we, got, we have to secure something for them. We have to make sure that they turn out to be this kind of person. And so we've got to get everything lined up so that they can satisfy this picture with the subtext always being so they can be happy. And even not too long ago, we, we worked at a, a church where, that was filled with a lot of very successful people that had a lot to feel the right kind of pride about. But when it came to their kids and even posing the question, like, where do you think God wants them to go to school? Many of them being devoted, godly men and women looked at me like I was insane. What do you mean? And it can be something as simple as that, simply not being allowed to ask the question. Or maybe it was worse. Looking at faces, I imagine that some of it was worse. And again, as Jesus has redeemed every moment, every person he touches, every story he tells, is not being corrupted by the pain that we carry, not being corrupted by the sin in our lives, but is redeeming it. So Jesus in this way, in some mysterious way that maybe only he could know is retelling a story for us that maybe you didn't have that voice of affirmation, 
Maybe you didn't have that older godly man in your life saying, this is what God is doing, and this is what your life will be about, and it is a beautiful thing. Maybe you didn't have that. But here in this moment, Jesus has that, and here's one of the most wonderful things, even beyond that, that if you will ask him now, he'll speak those things over you. This is something I've gone through recently. And, uh, as I like to say, m- 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 the family I was born into is a lot like uh, a child being raised by wolves. Um, because I was born to a bunch of engineers. And I'm not an engineer. I'm not. I was a kid in all of my math classes going, but why is this true? I get the Pythagorean theorem. I understand all the history, A squared, whatever. But why is that true? And all my teachers looked at me like, can you just please go sit down? I wanted to know why. I wanted to ask those hard questions. And so often in my life, I felt like, I think God made a mistake because I don't know that these are my people. And even as I've gotten older, I've realized that there were even moments in my young childhood where uh, my grandfather and other family members would even say out loud, like, why is Jake so different? But not in a, a nice way. And a, a lot of my young life, a lot of my adult life has been exactly this. I've realized it has been looking for that affirmation. And the most healing thing I've ever learned to do is to simply go, God, who do you say I am? What, what do you say my life is about? What do you want to do with me? And maybe it's right now, maybe it's this afternoon, but I want to encourage you to take a moment, five minutes, an hour, whatever you have, and to simply do that. God, what? What is it you want to say over me? What's the story? What's the tape that you want to replace? And can you just let me hear it? Because otherwise, I think too many of us will continue living out the same stories, the same life, the same pain. And there's one last person for us to consider. In verse 36, Luke tells us that there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She too was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. And here again is another picture of this godly person, this person who has lived out their days. Uh, It's... Luke's numbers are somewhat confusing. It's possible he could be saying that she's 84 years old. It's also possible that he could be saying she's over 100. The point being, this is a godly woman. But there's also another important detail that Luke includes, and it's one that we might overlook, partially because we don't really think about this too much. But he mentions that she's of the tribe of Asher. Which you're probably thinking... Great, cool. Here's why that matters. This woman, though she is godly, and though she has lived what sounds like kind of a lonely life, 
After seven years, her husband died, and she's lived the rest of her life as a widow. To describe her as of the tribe of Asher, and not just the fact that she's a widow, not just the fact that she's obviously experienced some loss in life, uh, but to say she's of the tribe of Asher is that as far as the people of Israel goes, she's way out on the edge. Asher was one of the furthest north tribes. Where they lived was right along the sea at the north edge of the nation of Israel. And that doesn't get a whole lot of play because obviously, it, it, honestly, it wasn't that significant. And here is, and yet, in Jesus' earliest days, as it, with so much of his ministry, it's always the overlooked. It's always those on the edges. It's always those just at the end that get the, get the first look, that get the best look, that suddenly have the most magnificent place And this is no accident because actually if we go all the way back to Isaiah, all the way back to the earliest chapters in uh, Isaiah 11 when he is talking about the coming Messiah, when God will finally bring his kingdom and defeat all of their enemies, he he doesn't first come to the heart of the nation. That he actually starts at the edge. And Matthew specifically pulls these verses as verses out, and if you'll read the early chapters of Matthew, uh, he will specifically quote these. But even there, even uh, what Isaiah does is that God will come to Zebulun and Naphtali, who were two other tribes of Israel that were also on the northern edge, and he says that God will come first there, to the furthest reaches, to the most overlooked, to the most backwater people, the last folks that you think God would come to when something really important and monumental needs to happen. He doesn't go to the movers and shakers. He doesn't go to those with connections. He doesn't go to those with means. He goes to those whose names we've forgotten. And even among those we've forgotten, even Isaiah doesn't even mention Asher. Even though if you look at a map and where all the tribal allotments were, they're right next to each other. Asher's not even mentioned. Even just to say Zebulun is like, oh, gee, all the way out there? Okay. And yet here's this woman who at the end of her days represents the most overlooked, the most forgotten, the most insignificant, inconsequential people in all of Israel. She gets one of the first looks. She gets to see the work that God is doing. And if maybe you didn't have uh, the, two, the two other stories didn't speak much to you, maybe it's this last one, the fact that you felt constantly overlooked, constant, constantly inconsequential, of little value to anyone else. And yet here you are. In this moment with the church, gathered, God is coming to you. You get the look. You get this moment. Then in the church calendar, again, we are replaying the story of Jesus. And in this moment, you get that first look at the new thing God is doing, the new work that he's about to do. And maybe it's right now in your life. Maybe it's for this coming year, but God is coming to do something in your life. 
that the stories and tapes that have been playing over your life or over your year, he's saying you get the first look. You don't have to be in a better position. You don't have to jockey for place in this church or anywhere else in your life. You get the first look. You get to see what I'm doing. You get to see what I am about to do. And what what God is about to do is Luke concludes this little story that when they performed everything according to the law, they returned to Galilee to their town of Nazareth. The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, which is simply a way to say that every prophetic person that has ever lived before this moment, every priestly function that a person could serve for someone else in God's kingdom, that Jesus is growing into all of it, and that these three encounters were key to it. And that every part of every human life, every wound or every story that you could carry with you, Jesus in these moments has touched and redeemed and restored. So something new is on the horizon. Something different. Some newer, something fuller, some greater expression of God's kingdom is about to come into the world. And Lord willing, for some of us, it is about to come into our lives, into our homes, into our year. Let me pray for us. God, I am myself grateful, thankful, beyond words at the fact that you didn't just beam yourself down a fully grown man and do what needed to be done but that you lived every moment, every stage of life, every experience, just like we do. Not so that you could say, I've been there, but so that you could touch it, redeem it, restore it, and make it new. And God, I know, I know that I know that so many of us are still carrying wounds from our childhood, from the lack of of some sort of father's affirmation, because we just felt so out of place, even in the families that we have. And that you, Lord Jesus, let yourself at your weakest and most vulnerable experience all of those things so that you could restore them. So that we now, all of these thousands of years later, could actually have those tapes replaced. We could have those wounds healed. We could get a new story. You know, everyone here and you know what they need, God, I'm praying by your spirit that you would give them that right now. Let them hear your affirmation of them. Let them feel that they can be enough simply because they're yours. You made them, they belong to you. Let us believe that even if we feel on the edge, the most overlooked that we could have the first glimpse of what you're doing. I pray that you would do these things by your spirit. Not just so that we would feel better, but God, so that we could leave testifying to the fact that you make us new. You are about the work of transformation. So God, transform us today in these deepest places so we can go from this day, this year, all of it, into something new. 
some new expression of your kingdom. God, I pray it for each of these people here in the name of Jesus.